Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In a sudden flash, it all comes clear. It's a eureka moment, an epiphany. Hi, I'm Marcus Smith, host of the Constant Wonder podcast. The world offers marvel, meaning, and mystery around every single corner. In nature, art, science, culture, history, we talk everything from bees and beetles to obelisks and asteroids. Experience the thrill of transformative encounter. We'll bring more wonder to your day. Listen to Constant Wonder wherever you get your podcasts. Hello and welcome to another installment of History Hack. Uh, We're doing some ancient history today and we get to have fun. Why do we get to have fun, Matt? We do, because we are joined by journalist and writer Elodie Harper, who's going to talk to us about her debut historical novel, The Wolf Den, which is all taking place in Pompeii. Hello, Elodie. How are you? Hi. Nice to see you both. Oh, this is brilliant. So first of all, you've done novels before, but not. why did you suddenly want to do a historical novel? Um, I've actually always wanted to do a historical novel. So my first novel was really a ghost story. Um, which I repackaged as a crime novel and then wrote another crime novel. Um, and that kind of fits with my role as a journalist. I cover a lot of crime and history has always been what I love uh, outside of my working life. And I wanted to do that instead, really. And this is going to, this is one book in a set of three, isn't it? Um, what inspired you to pick Pompeii? And we, I'm having a thing at the moment about how I um, am talking up historical fiction when it gets to cover things that historians won't ever get to because the evidence just isn't there Um, and sometimes we have to rely on the creative and your setting is a brothel which we're not going to find the diary of a woman in a Pompeii brothel I wish we would find it scratched on a tablet somewhere but it's not going to happen so what led you down these paths? That's really interesting I mean we have got the graffiti which I'll come on to in a minute because we do get some impression of the women from that um I love, I've always loved the classical world. So part of my English degree, I did Latin literature in in the original. So um, particularly, you know, the Latin side of things rather than the Greek has been a big interest of mine. And I absolutely love novels that reimagine the ancient world and women's role in it, because women are often quite integral players in ancient myth, but they're imagined from such a masculine perspective in the old stories. And obviously, you know, now there's more of a trend from imagining it from the woman's point of view. Um, and for me, I wanted to go uh, even beyond myth and look at how women actually lived. And obviously Pompeii, I know it's famous for the volcano, but that wasn't really what interested me. What interests me about Pompeii is we've got such a wealth, a massive amount of material on how people lived, um, not just how they died, uh, their lives, you know, the kind of minutiae of people's lives, the makeup sets that have survived, the frescoes that show how people dressed and um, the stories that they told. Um, and the brothel, which you mentioned, is the most famous sort of landmark really on the tourist trail through Pompeii. And that itself has, 
I mean, it's been seen in a very particular way, in a kind of bit of a nudge, nudge, wink, wink, sleazy, titillating way, um, because it's got these erotic frescoes. It's a very evocative space. It survived, you know, in, in an extraordinary state of preservation, really. Um, so it is very famous, but it's not looked at from the women's point of view. You know, these were real people. They lived real lives. Um sort of sexual exploitation has been such a massive part of women's lives through history. And it's not often looked at from the point of view of how people got on with their lives kind of around that. And in terms of the evidence that's left behind, yes, we've got the erotic frescoes, which are obviously very objectifying, but we've also got some graffiti in the brothel that gives us the names of some of the women and occasionally glimpses potentially of personality too there's one woman victoria who becomes a character in my book who refers to herself as the conqueress so victoria victrix on the walls um and she sort of refers to herself multiple times in this way um so that kind of is a, is a vague hint and then there's also drawings that I imagine the women rather than the customers did. Of course, we can't know this for sure, like a bird, a ship, a face, uh, just a real sense of them as people rather than as objects to be blustered over both at the time they were alive and subsequently as kind of, yeah, this nudge, nudge, wink, wink thing going on. It must have been a lot of fun taking that research and then expanding on it in your imagination to create to create the novel how how did how was your process around that these sort of little little glimpses into these women that you were able then to expand on it's, yeah I mean it, the research process was really fascinating um and it's quite a difficult balance because on the one hand you don't want to be too bleak and grim and awful about it I mean who wants to write that and who wants to read it um so it was it was a real balance between looking at the sort of hard reality of what the women's lives were likely to have been and I didn't I couldn't go to the really bleakest point to be honest I mean there there are various theories about how that brothel operated whether it was on a freelance basis where women would kind of rent the rooms out whether they were almost all certainly enslaved or whether it was a sort of set group of women which is the road I went down who were run by a particular pimp on site um in reality, they, they probably were just stuck in the cells. Um, but I just couldn't write a book like that. I mean, how grim would that be? So I had them going out for business, meeting people so that they had freer lives than they probably would have done in reality. Um, and in terms of how I did the research, I mean, there's some amazing books on Pompeii out there, Mary Beard's Pompeii being an obvious example. Um, and there's also just so much um visual material so all the frescoes the sense you get women from that um you know not just in the brothel but you know all over the walls of Pompeii they're now mainly in the Naples Museum so I guess that was my starting point and spending time in the building itself getting a real sense of what the place was like what it might have been like to have had to live and work there that's so interesting. And there is so much, like you say, about Pompeii. Did you, um, what other aspects of life in Pompeii have you brought in and other jobs and other people? Because you must have been able to dip into, because obviously you've got to build the world around them. So who else made it into the book <laughs> other than prostitutes and brothels? Yeah, so the brothel's really the starting point. And then, you know, it's it's not going to be a whole trilogy in a brothel. Um, so that's where the main character starts out. So initially on her sort of um, 
journey in the book it's you know people who are similarly quite low down the scale so there's like the local pub where they almost certainly would have all gone and hung out or have been familiar to them so the characters working there and there are all those amazing excavations and discoveries of the um, fast food bars and taverns in Pompeii there's that recent one the bright yellow painting of, of the bar and the frescoes and um, so there's that aspect of life, the kind of fast food, almost cafe culture that they had, um, because most people didn't cook at home. They would have eaten out on sort of street food. So there's that aspect. Um, there's the women that they would have met in the baths, at the public baths. So women from all different sorts of walks of life that they would have bumped into. And then later, as Amara, the central character, she's very ambitious to get out of the brothel, you know, meeting men from a higher standard of life I kind of married two slightly unlikely aspects of a prostitute's life in that time so I had her um she eventually manages to be hired out to give uh, musical entertainment at parties which is certainly something that um women did at that time who were also used as prostitutes um I use the word prostitute because the women would have been enslaved so sex workers kind of implies an agency um that they wouldn't have had um so that then let me go into a slightly higher uh, strata of life. Um, and in doing that, you know, a lot of the inspiration is from Latin literature. So reading accounts of, you know, other other accounts than just Pompeii based, I guess, um, you know, sort of across that period uh, when I'm writing the 70s AD. So. I took the text, the Satyricon by Petronius, um, and he writes a very, very famous banquet scene, Trimalchio's Feast. Um, and in that, the satire is against the guy throwing the banquet, Trimalchio. You know, he's a freedman. He's kind of scoffed at. But I really wanted in this book to look at it from the enslaved perspective rather than how we normally have in Latin literature, a very sort of top-down view. So I reversed that as to what would happen if, in fact, the freedman wasn't the figure of fun, but the people laughing at him at his banquet are actually more the targets of satire for us now than he is. So, yeah. So does, I suppose, taking that and twisting around by <clears throat> focusing on, on, on the women of the brothel, that gives you a way into that sort of bottom up stratus. You can enter into so many places that maybe perhaps the, the social norms would have kept your characters away from. There's definitely that. And it's also just, I feel it's such a huge, huge part of um, Roman history. You know, the empire was only able to run uh, on enslaved labour. And the way that enslaved labour was embedded in every single part of society, right from, you know, the, the worst kind of life as an enslaved person in the mines or clearing out the sewage or whatever, all the way up to um, enslaved people who had quite high status as secretaries or courtesans. Um, it just really mattered to me of wanting to sort of think as deeply as I could about what that meant for human relationships in that period when so many people were enslaved. Um, and uh, there's a fascinating book by uh, Robert Knapp called uh, Invisible Romans. Um, he's a historian. And he talks about something called the mind world of a slave and trying to go and look at historical artifacts or texts that are not written about slaves, but have some sense of expressing how they looked at life. So things like uh, tombs that were made, 
thinking about the fact, um, you know, the type of family arrangements that people could have. And I think one of the really major aspects of life that I found both appalling and quite fascinating was um, the extent to which sexual exploitation was not restricted to uh, prostitutes at all like anyone who was enslaved was was vulnerable to being used that way including men so in fact you know a lot of men suffered from this as well because I came at it initially from this very sort of feminist female driven perspective but then when you read about the brothel why there are no uh, scenes of of gay lovers on on the walls and a suggestion is because for men who used that brothel who would generally have been very lower class either enslaved or quite low down the pile because higher class men wouldn't have have gone to the, the town brothel um you know the reason why there aren't scenes of men with men is that that would probably have been quite triggering for a lot of the customers who would have been reminded of their own um abuse so looking at a society which in which abuse was kind of endemic and accepted, but at the same time hated by the people who are on the receiving end of it, I thought was quite an interesting thing to think about. You've kind of covered a little bit of this already, but you've mentioned slavery um, and it is is heavily tied in with slavery. The idea of prostitution and brothels, like you say, there, there's no agency to the girls working there. Um it's something that you have very little evidence for from their perspective. So how did you overcome that lack of source material? So there is some um, kind of evidence, as I say, in the, in the writing. So normally it is, uh, you know, sort of uh, the slave owning class writing about enslaved people. But sometimes they do so more sympathetically. So um, Seneca, for instance, in his letters, um, writes about the type of stuff that happened to slaves so you know you might be used as a human napkin at the table people would literally wipe their hands on their clothes to, to clean their hands um, he talks in fact about the, the abuse of male slaves uh, how you know uh, for, for the Romans to be used the person male or female who was used by the other was kind of considered degraded so or um humiliated i guess rather than degraded um so there's that aspect you've also got you know very famous uh slaves who became freedmen like cicero's uh slave tiro um you know very educated people who it kind of blurs into being part of the family but of course you're not part of the family um but I found that interesting as well and actually not perhaps as as different as as we like to imagine, because part of it is the economic imbalance um, and the power imbalance. So I think we can relate to that. Um, I think there's also as well, if you tie it in with um, we would see it as a Roman doesn't do me time do they privacy is some no. very alien concept in ancient rome i mean you would expect to be going to the toilet and having a slave wandering around in the bathroom or you would expect to be surrounded by you the idea of having a room to yourself isn't something they do is it no that's very much the case um but something that they did value and what marked freed people out from enslaved was bodily autonomy yeah so capital punishment you couldn't you know that's that's not allowed for a roman citizen but i think i think the bodily autonomy aspect was the 
is is in a way the hardest to get your head around when thinking about what it might have been like to be an enslaved person that you literally didn't own yourself you couldn't object to however you were treated really so i mean i think i think there is a lot of evidence of how people were treated there is slightly less you know there is less evidence about what they actually thought but you know some of the the dedications that freed people left or their writings from that you can you can look backwards to what their lives were like when they were enslaved and the fact that people still had very close family bonds you can see from their tomb inscriptions you know people within the enslaved community would have cared a lot about each other they would have been able to get married but it wouldn't have been legally binding and so they could have been separated and that's a kind of whole other horror um that i don't go into in book one um so Yes, not sort of there's no slave memoir that we can read, mm. but there is, there is quite a lot of evidence of of that you can then build around to then put yourself yeah. and into it's the beauty of historical fiction as well is that you don't need to prove it you you're <laughs> creating you're creating an imagining of it not you're not a historian who has to cite every source you can use it as inspiration if you like yes, exactly, and there is evidence that you know enslaved peoples longed to be free and certainly writing about women that was the road I went to as my central character's motivation because I didn't want to be anachronistic and make her a massive feminist because there wasn't a kind of systemic argument for ending patriarchy or anything under the Roman um, empire but you know it was common for slaves to 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 fight very hard and to be ambitious to be freed so that was her motivation for getting out of the brothel and for you know to to become free so um yeah that that was how i had the main character arc's journey so your main character's name is amara is she real or did you sort of build her out of a few well the name real did you build her out of a few different stories that you picked so i didn't use the main character's name as one of the real women from um the brothel uh so victoria cressa and berenice are all names um written in the brothel walls so they they were real women um amara her, her name in latin is uh halfway between love and bitterness and it's she's a greek character and you know it is it is a greek name it's not a common greek name um but it fitted in with with the character's personality she's named by her owner that's not her real name her real name is timorete which is um her greek her greek name she's based really i mean she's an absolutely fictional character we do have women that um rose from being courtesans to becoming quite powerful uh and freed women who you know went on to to, to hold positions of if not power certainly they could be wealthy um and in this period that was becoming more and more the case that courtesans in particular not brothel prostitutes but if you managed to get on a trajectory where you were a more high class form of prostitute then we do have evidence of these women that they were quite influential they could be educated uh they could be you know valued for more than just being sex objects Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? 
Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I, I'm just intrigued by your, your process for, for building your characters and how, how many different elements creates your core cast is it you you mentioned the, the three women whose names are recorded yeah in the just, pub as well yeah do, do, yeah do you just sort of start taking a name and then just sit down with a cup of tea and and just start imagining what this person would be or or do you start drawing from lots of different other sources to, to bring it together I, I i just find all that process fascinating he's a complete nerd who does like nuts and screws <laughs> on airplanes so like imagination is an alien concept of that sometimes <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I like imagination. I'd like to have one one time. <laughs> well, it was a it was a real range of stuff. So Victoria, you know, she's kind of based on the graffiti that we have in the brothel. Um, Amara was, you know, very much a, a fictional character. There are some real personalities. So I had Pliny the Elder, the actual um, admiral of the Roman fleet and uh, famous author of the natural history. Uh, as a character in it. And we don't have huge amounts of information on what he was like as a personality. I mean, Pliny the Younger talks about him a bit. Um, Daisy Dunn wrote a fabulous book called In the Shadow of Vesuvius, which is like a joint biography of the two men. Um, so I kind of drew his character from, he has a very strong and particular voice in the natural history. Uh, it's actually quite, sometimes he can be quite sort of pompous, but a lot of the time he's just wonderfully reflective and thoughtful. Um, and so that side of him, I tried to draw out in the book. Um, other characters, like there was a landlord uh, called Sitius at one of the bars opposite the brothel. So I stuck him in the book, um, but he's, he's not a main character. The main barman was completely invented. Um, yeah. I mean, Mainly, I just use total artistic license in creating characters. Um, but I did try and base it somewhat on what their experiences were likely to have been. So, for instance, the pimp Felix is, although he's a villain, I didn't want him to be a kind of cardboard cutout villain. So he's he's multifaceted. He had a very difficult life. He was enslaved originally as well. So it's also how people perpetuate quite an abusive system they've often you know gone through it themselves it hasn't made them more sympathetic to people who are now at the bottom they just know the system better than the people controlling it yeah and they've managed to get to a certain point and you know and book two you know without giving too many spoilers is is more about you know it's very easy to have sympathetic be sympathetic towards a main character who's struggling to get her freedom right i mean we all want 
her to win that and we can all relate to that but then once you're in the system how to what extent do you then become complicit do you own other enslaved people how do you treat them how how does that work I really want to know so we talked about like and yes it is historical fiction um you mentioned having to mash two unlikely events together um are there any points that gave you a headache were there any problems that you encountered yeah there were and I must admit whenever that happened like the mashing together of a a brothel slave becoming kind of going to parties it's not impossible but probably I still find myself having when I do this with Mike because I do some World War One fiction still have like this existential crisis that I know deep (laughs) down in my heart that it's not that couldn't have happened or that like that, that he wouldn't have got four aeroplanes that he could get from Cairo to London in a day. But it is physically possible, so it's okay to do it. But, oh, and it's just like, I spend a week pulling my hair out over it and going, oh, can I, can't I? And I'm just, just do it. It's fiction, for God's sake. That's it. I think that's what you have to do in the end, you know. And I've, I've spoke to a historian friend about it, and he was just like, oh, you know, the plot always wins. As long as it's plausible to the reader, yeah. um, and it's not, you know utterly fantastical I, I think it's fine you you you're kind of as long what I really wanted was for the book overall to reflect something true about life at that period and to have a grounding in the in the real site the artifacts the research but after that I think you do have to you you have to be led by the plot because it isn't it isn't um, a history book it's a novel um, and yeah, I mean that there's the, there's a graveyard scene in the necropolis where initially I just couldn't write it because I was like, oh, the necropolis would not have been set out this way and yeah. not very likely. But, um, in the end, you know, and you take some details of what the necropolis would genuinely have been like, but then fling in some other invented stuff. But, you know, yeah. you have to tell a good story at the end of the day. At one point, you just have to get over yourself, don't you? I think so. (laughs) That's what the author's notes at the end are for. Yeah, Yeah. I made extensive use of those in the last fiction book. Yeah, okay. (laughs) This is where I admit everything that's crap in the book. (laughs) So, this I suppose this is going to be a really mean question. Who's your favourite character? (laughs) Well, I mean, Amara is my favourite character. Um, But, as you know... I hope she's the most interesting character in there. I tried to make her neither, you know, she's sympathetic, but um, she's, she's a real survivor. So she's quite ruthless as well. And she has to do certain things to survive and she has to make some very difficult choices, uh, which she does. Um, but aside from Amara, I think, you know, your favorite characters are as a writer are different from who your favorite characters would be as a person. So her best friend Dido is probably the nicest character in the book. But, you know, aside from Amara, um, I, I really like Felix, the villain, um, because I, I found him interesting. Um, I wanted to go beyond kind of just looking at the fact women were, were oppressed and had a very difficult time. And, you know, we haven't looked at this period so much from their point of view to also trying to look at the men slightly differently too, the ways in which they also suffered from this this particular type of system. So I guess Felix is a product of that, the choices he's made to become abusive. And their relationship was probably one of my favourite things 
to write because they have many similarities, Felix and Amara. And if she had been a man, you know, one wonders, would she have become Felix? Um, so, you know, and she be- she has to become a bit more like him as the book progresses. And it's a bit of a love. It's a real love hate relationship that they have. This is an Alina question. Um because she is obsessed with Pompeii she would like to know did you discover any new source material that would change the way we look at Pompeii I think this is more in hope than expectation <laughs> no, <I don't> <laughs> I wish I could say yes is there anything you found when because you must have had a, a reasonably good understanding or an interest in Pompeii to want to write a, a historical trilogy set there was there anything that changed your perception of it once you started doing like the deeper research um, I think the extent of the graffiti, the way people used it, you know, almost sort of message each other an informal messaging service. It's like texting, isn't it? It is like texting or sexting often as well. <laughs> I think what was Mary Beard's favourite one is uh, there's like a pun on the uh, I, I fucked here, I think someone's written on the wall. I fucked you owed here or something like that. It's her favourite one. Plenty of that. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, she's on episode nine. That's a lot of episodes ago. Oh, no, wait, but that was like, she she still finds that one very funny. A lot of them are very funny, all the way that people sort of answered each other back. So there's one where someone's put, lovers like bees live a honeyed life, and somebody else is stuck underneath, I wish. So <laughs> <laughs> the humour's great. I, but I have to be honest, the thing that shocked me the most, well, shocked maybe not, but was a bit surprising, was the number of, of penises everywhere. Yeah, this is another of Alina's fixations is the, the museum in Naples with the penis room from Pompeii. And... Well, but they were everywhere, you know, they were like part of the lamp. You know, you might have a lamp, which is, mm. they had lots of, uh, what can you call them? Lots of cock lamps. You've got them like engraved on the road. You've got them painted on the wall. Yeah. Sophie Hay did explain why. Uh, and it is like a cultural thing. It's like a, a, a luck thing. It is, but actually, I so I'm a bit more with Mary Beard here that, yes, possibly a good luck thing and also warding off the evil eye and all of that. They are also... It also is just a human propensity if you put a bit of wall and a pen to just draw a cock, isn't it? But but also it's it's a kind of um, quite an aggressive uh, thing to do. It's quite sort of emblematic of a very male dominated society where male pleasure is 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 a thing i'm not saying it's like the dick pics of pompeii but it kind of is and there is some evidence in some of the literature that this wasn't always comfortable for women so marshall talks about a well-bred girl the poet marshall you Mm. know holding her hands in front of her face to avoid looking at a priapus so i think i don't know i think they both are as exactly as Sophie Hay says, you know, they are this kind of good luck charm. They are kind of non-sexual, but then they also are sexual as well. Mm. So that's quite alien for us too, I think, to think about that. I've I've often thought, is is it partly due to what you mentioned earlier, that lack of agency over your own body? Yes, I think. For for so much that you're just trying to to throw something out there that's probably But you know what I mean? That's just trying to take some some little bit of semblance of control. What the the, the men that would do that, or or, or anyone? Because you know, it's just that knowing that those in charge and those with power, uh, generally male and generally putting their 
their bits where other people may not want them. Maybe it was just that trying to sh- throw it back. I have no evidence for this. It's I've I've just I find that. Possi- I mean, it, it's possible. There's there's like there's a fresco of a guy with with two penises in the brothel, for instance, and it's like, was this a slightly menacing thing for customers? Is it a kind of you know behave yourself or? Because Priapus could be like guarding a garden, you know, it's, it's, it's both, it's both a boast and a threat to other men, I think. So, yeah, I see what you're saying. I mean, I think it is both kind of look at my dick, really. Um, but also, yeah, just the possibility that that might be threatening to other men as well as, as a brag, I guess. It's one of those frustrating things like with the thumbs up or the thumbs down, which meant which in the comments. That we will never know because we can't ask them. No, and some of it might have been a joke as well. I mean, so I can't believe some of these lamps weren't a joke. I mean, they're so gross. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> they, they bought in the gift shop. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, this is like a souvenir from a sex museum, like when people go to Amsterdam and and well, or yeah. you, and you go anywhere um, where you can find a sex museum. Uh, Elodie. We've got waylaid into the weeds talking about uh, cock, which is just it's unfortunately not rare on History Hack. But we need to tell everybody the book is out, The Wolf Den. Um, it's out very soon and we want everyone to go and buy it. So tell everybody where they can get it um, and tell them about um, the, the timeline for the rest of them and where you plan to go. So The Wolf Den is really an adventure story about Amara who starts off enslaved in a brothel and is determined to have a better life. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a journey right through Pompeii society on her quest for her freedom um, and her longtime feud and her longtime loves um, that start off in book one. Um, you know, it, it's very much not about the volcano erupting. This trilogy. I know but you did mention the life. 70s and I was like, oh, is that going to be like book three? Well, yeah, without giving too much away, it's likely that something might happen in book three. But it's it's very much not a volcano-dominated yeah. trilogy. This is very much about life in Pompeii and one woman's life in particular. Um, it's There's a special edition in Waterstones, uh, which has some uh, non-fiction stuff written by me about the real brothel and the real women. So that's a nice place to pick up a copy. Or you can order it anywhere, pre-order it anywhere in, in uh, online. It's out May the 13th. And Matt, you'll put it on our bookshop page. I have literally just done that now. So where does the title The Wolf Den come from, Elodie? Because it seems like it's very specific to something. It is very specific. So the Latin word lupana um, means both brothel and wolf den. So basically the book is called The Brothel. Um, But for Romans, it had the two meanings. So the wolf den or, or the brothel. And the name for a prostitute, a looper, was both she-wolf and prostitute. So I just felt it was a very evocative title because, you know, wolves sound quite predatory. They've got a bit of an edge, but of course the women themselves uh, were also kind of the prey, really. Um, and just on a little nerd tangent, it's, I think, really fascinating that you've got Romulus and Remus suckled by a looper as the symbol of Rome. And in some myths, she is, in fact, perhaps a prostitute. So... <laughs> This combination of the idea of wolves, wolf den, brothels, prostitutes, this is very much from the Latin language and the ancient world. 
outstanding. So you can go straight through History Hack to buy it, and then not only will Elodie get lots of sales and lots of attention like the book deserves, but History Hack will get paid too. So yay! <laughs> Elodie, thank you so much for joining us. Um, I can't wait. I've, I've been nagging Alina about um, sending. I want to get the Waterstones one with the factual stuff. I know she's she's had it because she did the questions and prepped it. So I'm like, send me the damn book. I need to see it too. So uh, yeah, she's out walking the dogs. She's not impressed. <laughs> so thank you very much thank you really nice to meet you both don't forget that we do exist on patreon as history hack and on patreon as well which is podbean's own version uh, elena and i have had massive fun doing this in 2020 uh, but life's going to change quite a lot next year and we're going to actually have to go and earn a living etc if we want to keep up the regularity that we've been bringing you and the kind of guests that we've been bringing you and the workload then we will need your help so uh, if you join there's going to be incentives for joining on either of those platforms. We're revamping ourselves on both of them. So don't forget to go in. You can do as little as a dollar a month and it all goes towards keeping up History Hack as regular as we've been able to bring it to you this year. When our guests join us to talk about their work in their new book, the 45 minutes or so they spend with us is just a taster of all their efforts. So to this end, we have launched our very own bookshop on bookshop.org where you can find our guests' latest and greatest books. You can support them, and you can support History Hack too. 10% of every sale via our bookshop supports the podcast and allows us to keep at it and bring you more amazing guests. You can find our bookshop at bookshop.org forward slash shop forward slash hack history, or just search on bookshop.org for us under the shops bit. Thank you for your continued support, and here's to your next great book. Normally, being a little extra might be a bit much, but not when it comes to healthcare. That's why United Healthcare's Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, supplement your primary plan so you manage out-of-pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com.